From Mito, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, blondes and allergies. In addition, we'll be joined by Hiroyoshi Higuchi talking about the flight of birds. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the world-famous question of the week. Here. On the Grok's. Science Show. Welcome back to the program. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not bad, not bad. It seems like it's been a while since uh, we've talked. It seems like it's been almost millennia. Perhaps eons have passed. Yeah, like supposed to be a dream or something. (laughs) Well, if so, we've uh, we've emerged on the other side more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Wow, and we're on, what, opposite sides of the planet now, right? <laughs> well, even better to uh, grab the two poles of the Earth and spin it into grokdom. <laughs> if that's even possible. You've been watching too many Green Lantern, man. Well, uh, if, if anyone would uh, appreciate the power of groks, it would be the Green Lantern. <laughs> By the way, what do you think about it? I well look. Uh, everyone who's listened to the show knows that I'm a big fan of the Green Lantern, and that uh, there's probably no better superhero uh, on the face of the planet. And that being said, the film version of the Green Lantern left a little something to be desired. <laughs> so that five hundred million dollars was not completely wasted. <laughs> I well look. I enjoyed it, but uh, you know, those of us who are fans of of the of the series or of the comic books really wanted something just fantastic it was good mm-hmm. i liked it mm-hmm. it was good but it could have been fantastic so that's the that's <laughs> my, that's my only complaint <laughs> but i would recommend people see it it's it's if you're not familiar with the green lantern go see it and that's uh, that's my geek recommendation of the day all right because that's our news and science fiction <laughs> well right? of course i mean uh, really i think we could just end it right there because what more do you need <laughs> but it turns out we still have real science well, okay, I guess if we have to cover the real science, let's go for it. What do we got? Uh, allergies. Allergies. Wow, you know, uh, one of my least favorite things on the planet. Yeah, me too. I'm allergic to them. <laughs> I'm allergic to your allergies, though. It's just a vicious cycle. This comes out of our uh, very favorite journal, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long since we've had anything or even talked about our favorite journal. Uh, but yes, uh, the proceedings, proceedings of the National Academies. Of sciences. You know, in Japan, they actually, people just pronounce it penis. As well they should. I mean, it should be a worldwide universal tradition. So anyways, uh, this work was carried out in Finland, where they looked at 100 or so teenagers for their sensitivity to uh, certain allergens. And what they found was that those who lived or grew up near farms or forests had less sensitivity. So... If they looked at their skin, what they found was a more diverse set of bacteria living there. And uh, one particular stood out was the uh, Acinetobacter, a type of gamma proteobacteria. And that was linked to uh, anti-inflammatory markers in the blood. Hmm. So it, it seems that humans are wired up to, uh, to develop their immune system in a way that you know, responds to a diverse set of bacteria in the environment. And as a result of urbanization, things are just a little bit too clean these days. So this supports this theory that over is causing a lot of the allergies we see right now. 
So really we need to just get down in the mud and, and stuff uh, dirt up our nose. Children seem to have a natural inclination. Why not let them, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there should be, you know, Milton Bradley should sell a kit for kids called dirt and just <laughs> ship it to them. So, so uh, uh, and, and I think maybe then parents would be more receptive to it. Yeah, and the labels just said, uh, just add dirt or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you could even brand it. You could have, like, you know, the Avengers dirt pack or something, you know. <laughs> Come with every oh, happy meal. That's another movie we need to check out soon. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I don't know. I, anyway, so um, so the recommendation then is uh, let your kids uh, uh, be exposed to the germs so that they can have a stronger immune system. Like most people have naturally been doing for the last, uh, I don't know, 500 million years. Exactly. <laughs> whenever humans came about. Well, other, other than that, I guess we could just uh, live in the bubble society and we could all be bubble boys and girls, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe just bubble boys if if we if we don't want to have the unclean act of of procreation in our society. Oh wow, <laughs> that's the end game there, huh? Well, you know, I'm just I'm just postulating a, a future society of 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 Green Lantern fans, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this was again for a very favorite journal. Yes, the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. Penis. Well, I have another story which has uh, probably very little to do with the last one unless you happen to be allergic to blonde hair. I like diversity. I mean, even though there's not too many blonde hair where I am. <laughs> well, <laughs> you maybe wait long enough and it could possibly evolve. So it can spontaneously uh, come about like, say, eyes in different creatures, right? <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess several creatures have evolved eyes in, in different ways and... <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, it's been the same feature of convergent evolution that you see in other situations, but new research coming out of Stanford University School of Medicine by um, Carlos Bustamante, not the same Carlos Bustamante as uh, is at Berkeley. This uh, Carlos Bustamante has uh, studied the genetic emergence uh, of blonde hair. So, I mean... Blondes are mostly associated with Northern Europeans, right? That's that's correct. Mainly, uh, uh, you see colonial Europeans uh, and and such showing uh, blonde hair. And there are several different genes that seem to be involved in producing blonde hair in, in humans, mm -hmm. uh, especially in, in Europeans. What uh, Bustamante's group has shown is that there's a completely different mutation that's occurred, in particular this gene called TYRP1. I'll call it the TERP1 gene. And this mutation is involved in Solomon Islanders. And basically he's shown that there's a particular mutation that's evolved and become quite prevalent in the Solomon Islanders where uh, the mutation results in blonde hair. So these are people living in South Pacific, I yeah, assume? the Oceanic region, which includes Melanesia. So yeah, South, uh, the Sol Solomon Islands, and so the idea is that this is a completely different uh, gene mutation. It's not shared by the blonde Europeans and really just shows how several different genes can give rise to the same phenotype and uh, how you can have evolution that's, uh, in a sense, um, what you call convergent, different, different mutations leading to the same outcome. There must have been evolutionary advantage where you see that as the dominant feature in Europeans. So I wonder what the conditions are in the islands that would make that favorable, or unless it's just point mutation. Well, I, I think it's just that uh, blondes have more fun, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hear. 
So any gene that promotes fun, I think, is is highly regarded. Uh, they, they actually, in fact, they don't really know uh, why this mutation might have arisen. Uh, they're estimating about five to thirty thousand years ago. Uh, but uh, the general idea is that it's it's reached such a high frequency, but it could provide some evolutionary advantage, perhaps in the competition for mates. They're uh, suggesting, but uh, it's not known really. So people like uh, others who are different then. <laughs> Or it might be like the peacock feathers. It's it's unclear. In any case, if if anyone's interested in this, this is a, a really a fascinating work, and it was uh, published, unfortunately, not in our our favorite journal, which oh okay. our second favorite <laughs> journal. It's it's up there, and I'm not really sure if we've ranked it, but it's uh, it's the journal Science. And that's all for this week's look at the world of science and technology. In a few moments, Professor Hiroyoshi Higuchi will join us to talk about the journey of birds. So stay right there. Welcome back to the program, and joining us in our Hayama studio is Professor Hiroshi Higuchi, uh, formerly at the University of Tokyo and now at Kyo University. Uh, he's going to tell us uh, about the exciting world of birds. Uh, Professor Higuchi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for invi inviting me today. I understand uh, you've done many years of work on the behavior of birds, uh, their relationship with humans, mm -hmm. and more recently on the migration of birds across continents. To begin with, could you tell us how you became interested uh, in these creatures? Um, I became interested in birds when I was uh, in junior high school. My elder sister gave me a pair of uh, Bengal's finches. Uh, Bengal's finches are very popular uh, captive birds and easy to breed in captivity. And I uh, enjoyed keeping them in captivity and uh, produced uh, a lot of young. And uh, I also kept uh, various uh, different species of pheasants in my garden. Mm -hmm. And they are originally from China. They are very beautiful in plumage. Generally, if we buy them, we have to pay a lot of money. But uh, when I was a high school student, of course, I didn't have uh, such a big money. So I visited uh, some people who kept pheasants in their garden. And uh, they gave me some eggs of pheasants. And uh, I used uh, incubators or chicken to hatch them. And one of your research topics involved the research with crows. C could you tell us a little bit about these, uh, mm -hmm. this particular type of bird? Mm -hmm. Crows are very intelligent, very smart, and uh, they sometimes drop uh, walnuts from the air to the ground. Walnuts is very tough, so mm -hmm. uh, usually they cannot break them for their own. But they drop, if they drop the walnut onto the ground, they can break them. Mm -hmm. But even if they try to do that, it's not necessarily break the walnuts for mm -hmm. their own. So, 
but in Miyagi Prefecture and the surrounding areas, they use automobiles to break walnuts. They place walnuts on the street and yet to let the cars to break them and very smart clothes also use automobiles. So they know when the tire right. will come. They place a walnut uh, just in front of uh, the tire of the automobile uh, stopping at the red signal. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> they use uh, yeah, uh, high technology produced by the people. Of course, crows in inspire their intelligence and the focus on the behavior of the animals. They're also a nuisance in many cities. What has been some of the work done to take countermeasures against um, eating the trash or making mm -hmm. a mess? Yeah, uh, they cause uh, various different kinds of conflicts with people. Sometimes they disperse uh, garbage on the street and uh, they sometimes uh, steal soap from the uh, washing site of uh, uh, kindergartens wow. and uh, they also steal candles and to make fire in the field. I found that uh, I took video tapes showing uh, their behavior to steal candles and store them among foreign leaves in forest and uh, the candles are old-fashioned one Mm -hmm. And uh, old-fashioned uh, candles, they have very heavy wick. It's not easy to extinguish uh, the fire. fire. It's easier for crows to make field fires uh, by steering uh, them into the field. What's the purpose of the field fire? Will they oh, get more food? They store extra food such as candles uh, and uh, soaps. And uh, after for a while, they come back to the stored sites to eat them. The soap or the right. candle. Yeah, right. Soap is not regular food, for, even for crows. Right. But they prefer to take that. We can't eat soap or candles, but uh, mm. crows have uh, some, you know, special... Stomach. Yeah, stomach. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't care. Uh, another topic you work on is parasitic birds mm -hmm. uh, for example cuckoos. cuckoos right yeah could you tell us a little bit about that cuckoos uh, do not raise their young for their own they lay their eggs into the nest of host species uh, such as uh, bush warblers uh, buntings and shrikes and wagtails and the host species uh, raise the cook young so they feed them, they feed them uh, until they grow up. So uh, cuckoos uh, uh, can save their energy mm -hmm. to raise young. In this case, uh, cuckoos uh, can raise more, produce more eggs without rearing their young. So they don't build their own nest. They lay their eggs into the nests of other species of birds. Does that hurt the population of the host species? Oh, if the uh, the frequency of, of parasite is so high, the population of host species will decline. But uh, in regular cases, uh, populations of host species uh, will not decline so drastically. 
So it's, uh, it's a, symbiotic, know. not symbiotic, but more of an equilibrium. Right, right. Uh, it's uh, some sort of uh, equilibrium of uh, nature, natural balance. Oh, I see. Uh. What other birds besides cuckoos have that behavior? Oh, in North America, uh, brown-headed cowbirds is uh, uh, the, among very popular parasitic birds, and uh, they lay their eggs into the nest of very many species of birds. They include uh, sparrows in North America, right? And videos, uh, uh, cat birds, many, many other birds. So oh, the number of egg, uh, the number of cowbird eggs uh, laid into one nest may exceed more than 50. Wow, so, uh, 50. They are called a uh, uh, prairie chicken. <laughs> <laughs> prairie chicken. Prairie chicken. You've recently written a book, uh, originally in Japanese, called uh, Journey of Birds, mm -hmm. Satellite Tracking of Migratory Birds. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about this book? I collaborated with a Russian, American, uh, Indian, and Chinese scientists on satellite tracking the migration of birds, uh, such as cranes, uh, hawks, uh, storks, and uh, ducks and geese. They migrate over many countries uh, and it's uh, quite difficult or uh, impossible for us to track them mm -hmm. but uh, such a tracking is uh, a wonderful research tool to track the birds such a tracking means uh, use using weather satellite mm -hmm. and uh, when signals are emitted from the transmitters uh, that placed to the birds uh, usually in the back of the birds, uh, the satellite algo system uh, receives the signals and sends the signals into the ground station in France or Alaska and uh, collect day and time and latitude and longitude transformed through big computers. Mm -hmm. And our scientists uh, receive the time and the location data through internet. Once we deploy satellite transmitters to the birds, we can receive the location data to show their migration routes almost real time. So just some basic science questions. Do most birds migrate and what's the purpose of their migration? Migratory birds, uh, they come down from Siberia to Japan, for example, and uh, in winter, uh, Siberia, in Siberia, snows are covered on the ground mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it's uh, quite difficult or impossible for birds to eat food with a lot of snow or ice. Mm -hmm. So they come down to warmer areas, uh, okay. uh, such as Japan and other uh, temperate areas. But in spring, uh, why they go up to the northern areas again. That's uh, one ecological interesting question. Mm. But the uh, answer is that uh, in northern area, a lot more food is available in spring and summer. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, during that time, um, birds raise their young. So they do need extra food. So mm -hmm. northern area with plenty of food mm -hmm. is more convenient for them to breed. That's why they go up 
to northern areas uh, such as uh, Siberia area or Alaska. So these migratory birds, are they mostly in the northern hemisphere or is the opposite behavior in the uh, southern hemisphere? Right. Uh, some birds uh, go up to Japan in spring and uh, go down to Southeast Asia, for example. Uh-huh. And uh, so their original home may be tropical area. But uh, they are also interested in uh, yeah, uh, raising more young. So that's why they migrate northward to areas such as uh, Japan and uh, northern China, for example. In those uh, temperature areas, uh, more food is available compared with uh, in tropical mm-hmm. areas. One of the, the main challenges in your work involved the, the tracking device, the Uh process of the Mm -hmm. satellite tracking. Um, Mm -hmm. What kind of technologies do you use? We use the internet. So data are transformed to time and locations and we can receive such digital data on computer and we can show the magnetic routes using some sort of sophisticated software. And each bird has a bracelet to carry the Right. Tag. We call it the uh, uh, PTT, Platform Transmitter Terminal, PTT. So it, it contains a battery that will right, last a right. few months. Uh-huh. But uh, recently, a uh, solar battery oh. is available. Uh-huh. So we can track them for more than two years. So we can track uh, the same individual for three seasons, four seasons, or sometimes you know five or six seasons. Mm-hmm. It's very convenient, very useful research tool. I'm just curious, what other applications does this technology have uh, outside of satellite tracking? It's impossible for us to follow magnetic birds, right? Mm-hmm. Birds can fly anywhere, but we, we can fly and uh, we, we can follow them. So such a tracking is very convenient. And for example, there are two very impressive research results from our uh, such a tracking work. One is the importance of Korean DMZ. Korean DMZ? Mm-hmm. Korean DMZ is a nation border right. between South and North Korea. Uh, so it doesn't matter with the biology of birds or other creatures. But uh, we showed that uh, Korean DMZ is quite important for minority birds to step over winter. For example, white-naped cranes, which come down to Izumi, southern Kyushu, and uh, more than 10,000 cranes uh, winter there, but uh, nobody knows uh, the migration of the cranes. Uh-huh. And we deployed uh, uh, such a transmitters uh, yeah, to white-naped cranes. They stayed in the Korean DMZ for sometimes more than one, one month, mm. and many cranes stopped over in that area, uh, in particular Cholong and Panmunjom area. They are very well-known fighting areas during the Korean War. And uh, many cranes uh, stayed in those areas. And uh, we also tracked the red cranes from mm-hmm. Russia. And they also come down to the Korean DMZ to winter there. So, oh, and we overlaid the satellite locations onto the Landsat satellite mm-hmm. images, and uh, we found that uh, there almost all the locations we tracked are within the Korean DMZ and civilian control zone, mm-hmm. CCZ. 
so DMZ and CCZ are protected, and people cannot enter there without permission, and people cannot develop economically there. So it's easy for cranes to stay without any disturbance from people. That's why they stay there for long, very peacefully. Korean DMZ functions as a nature sanctuary. Speaking of migrations, one of the, the concerns these days is the spread of diseases, for mm-hmm. example, uh, bird flu. Can your research be used to identify how right. pathogens could mm-hmm. migrate from one region to another? Yeah, uh, one of our research goals is to study the spreading process of infectious diseases uh, such as uh, West Nile viruses or avian influenza. And uh, we track, uh, as you know, ducks quite important carriers, carriers of uh, the viruses. And uh, we tracked the migration of uh, some uh, species of ducks. And uh, we found that uh, they disperse very widely to areas of East Asia, particularly uh, Northern Russia. And uh, so once they get viruses somewhere, they may spread the viruses uh, to very wide areas in East Asia, where they may spread uh, their viruses into Alaska. American scientists are quite worried about the invasion of viruses into Alaska. Or we collaborated on the migration of northern pintail ducks. You know, since a lot of your research is carried out in Japan, was there any look at how birds could have been carrying radiation after the Fukushima disaster? We don't know much about that subject, but uh, when we get uh, Fukushima nuclear disaster, some ducks, geese, and swans very suffered with uh, nuclear materials, uh, and uh, they may have uh, spread over China and Russia. So, at the moment, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but uh, uh, it's quite uh, important for us to get information about the effect on breeding and survival mm-hmm. of birds, and uh, of course uh, the effect of human life. Some um, uh, Chinese and Russian people hunt ducks and geese to eat if uh, ducks and geese uh, suffered with uh, radioactive uh, poisoning they may become a serious problem. I would like to tell another important aspect of our research work. Uh, I would like to use satellite tracking work uh, not only for research but uh, educational purpose. I plan to open our satellite tracking research to the public mm. this upcoming summer. And uh, I always excited to look at my computer screen, computer monitor, to know where they are now. And uh, I think everyone can enjoy where they are now and uh, where they fly down or fly up. School kids, bird watchers can communicate to each other oh, yes. with the same information. So this will be available on the internet. Right. That's my next step. We've just been joined by Professor Higuchi and his forthcoming uh, English edition of the book, uh, The Journey of Birds, will be available soon. Uh, Professor Higuchi, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. Thank you very much. In a few moments, the world-famous question of the week, so stay right here on Grok Science.
All right, welcome back to the Grok Science Show. And now it's time for our world-famous question of the week. And joining us today, it's our good friend from Dagobah, Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? Mm, good food, good food. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Invite me, you do. Mm. Well, uh, you know, we, we always know that we're inviting you. We have to provide uh, some good food for you. So we, we've, we've uh, established a great dinner and a great buffet, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Mm, but see it, I cannot. Clouded by the dark side, we are. Mm, but fellow creature, he can. Mm, what is he? Uh, this is uh, unbeknownst to me that there are such creatures that have uh, the power of, uh, of sight. The only thing I could think of would be perhaps the eagle. Mm, correct, you are, my young Padawan. Uh, For miles they see the eagle does. Oh my goodness. We should we should all have eagle sight. Mm, in these wise you are. Genetic engineering, the key it may be. Mm. Blonde hair and eagle eyes. What more do you need? <laughs> good food, good food. All right, well, thank you, Jedi Master Yoda. Your wisdom is always appreciated. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. If you'd like to contact us, email us on the web, science at grox.net, or our webpage, www.grox.net. We're on Facebook and Twitter. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Lane. And for Grox Science, I'm Charles Lee. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.